0: As I watched the video of those believers in Syria, I was struck by three things. First, I was struck by their courage to remain in a difficult place, in a dangerous place. He said our, our privilege is not to leave, but it is to stay in order that they don't leave Syria without ambassadors for Jesus. Secondly, I was struck by their boldness, that despite living in a place where it is quite dangerous to be a believer, a follower of Jesus, they are speaking and sharing boldly about Jesus Christ. Thirdly, I was struck by the fact that despite the dangers and despite the persecution, that Many people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In Syria, the church is growing. Uh, If you don't already get information on the state and the suffering of the church around the world, I encourage you to be informed so that you can pray. Persecution.com gets you voice of the martyrs. Persecution.org gets you international Christian concern. There's Open Doors USA. There's the International Day of Prayer, IDOP. You can go to any of those websites. You'll find lots of info there. Uh, this week I received a note from John and Hannah, our missionaries on Paradise Island. There is growing danger for believers in many parts of the southern Philippines, yet John and Hannah are committed to staying and living on that remote island where they are to share the gospel of Jesus. Five years ago, a young man named Abdul on Paradise Island became a believer in Jesus Christ. As John uh, shared in his note, he said that just a month ago, Abdul's wife and son also trusted Jesus as their Savior. And October 3rd, uh, they were baptized. Syria and the southern Philippines. Two places where the culture is hostile to Christianity and the cost to be a believer can be very high and yet the gospel is spreading. People are becoming believers in Christ. Jesus' church is growing. Here, traditionally, in the United States, that Christianity has been appreciated and respected, but that's rapidly changing. Today, we will find many around us, if not most, are rather indifferent, ambivalent towards Christianity. And there are growing voices of intolerance and hostility against biblical values and against Christianity as a whole. And I wonder how is it that we are to live in a pagan culture where the responses to Jesus range from mildly apathetic, to wildly antagonistic. What can we do so that like our Syrian brothers and sisters in Christ and our brothers and sisters in the southern Philippines, where we are able to gain an audience with unbelievers around us, where ultimately they listen to our message and some come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, we could get on a plane and go travel and go to dangerous places and talk with some of our persecuted brothers around the world and get answers from them as some of us have from some of our brothers and sisters in the southern Philippines. Or we can find the answers in the same place they do. It's right here in the Word of God. Titus chapter 3, it's our passage this morning. We've been going through the book of Titus. Young Pastor Titus is on the island nation of Crete. Given the the Cretans' notorious reputation as people who were always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. That's what they said of themselves. That's what everybody else in the Roman world said of them as well. If that's who they were, we can imagine that Christianity typically was not received with open arms by most Cretans. And so here it is in the first couple of verses here of chapter 3, that the Apostle Paul gives some very specific instructions for how we are to live in relation to the culture and to the people around us even if they are pagan, even if they are antagonistic. Follow along as I read these first couple of verses. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul says, Pastor Titus, remind them, Part of the job of being a pastor is teaching you what you might not know from the Word of God. But a big part of the job of pastor is simply reminding you of things that you already know. And that's what Paul is doing here for us this morning. Two verses with seven extremely practical commands for how we are to live as Christian citizens in a pagan culture. First, he says, be submissive to rulers and authorities. Those two terms, rulers and authorities, cover all authority. The ruler, the guy at the top of the pile, the emperor, the king, the president, the head of, you know, whatever, and then all the way down the chain of command, Till you get to the bottom of the pile, you know, the dog catcher or whatever. That's the authorities. The ruler is the top. The authorities is everybody else along the line. And he says, for you and me, believers in Jesus Christ, we are to be submissive to the ruler and the authorities. That means we need to simply recognize they're in charge. And to then, here's the difficult part, to willfully place ourselves under their authority that's being submissive and i'm positive that these cretan believers needed reminder of this the cretans were notoriously a rebellious people they were history tells us they were fretting and fuming under roman rule they didn't like the romans being in charge The ancient Greek historian Polybius said that they were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and internecine wars. So they needed a reminder, these Cretan believers, that they're to be different. But let's not kid ourselves. We don't like much being told what to do either. We don't like authority and accountability most of us are rebels at heart. Don't look at me incredulously like, Whoa, I've never thought of that. We are. I was reminded of that this past week. I had, had uh, left the office, gone to grab some lunch, was driving back. I got in the car, started driving back, just a little ways down the road, and it goes, ding, 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 and the little thing comes up and flashes and says, Put on your seatbelt. And I go, no. I don't want to. And a little voice in my head says it's the law. And my and another little voice in my head says I don't want to. And another little voice says think of your grandchildren. You know, they're counting on grandpa being around, on papa being around. And another little voice, you know, the other voice goes I don't want to. And believe it or not, for about five minutes, there's this thing going back and forth in my mind, and I'm not putting on the seatbelt. Then I look a little ways down the road, and I see a police car, and I go, (laughs) seatbelt. Do you ever do the same kind of thing? We're just rebels. I don't want to. (laughs) No. Why should we? Why is it important to submit to authority? Well, Romans chapter 13, one of those several other passages in Scripture that deal with this subject, says that all authority finds its origin in God, for there is no authority except from God. And those, those authorities which exist, are established by God. Romans 13.1 Even corrupt authority, he says, has good purpose. Just a couple of verses later in Romans 13, 4, it says, "...for authority is a minister of God to you for good." See, even corrupt authority, and by the way, much authority is corrupt, right? And we're tempted to say, that's corrupt, I don't need to follow them. Well, God says, yes, you do. Even corrupt authority does good. It restrains the bad behavior of others. And that's good for all of us. And it restrains your bad behavior, like your tendency to speed or run stop signs or signal lights. And that protects other people from your bad behavior. (laughs) We love authority when we agree with it. But it doesn't say here to be submissive to authority when we like the authority figure or when it's the person that we voted for into office <laughs> or if we agree with it or if we if it's convenient it just simply says be submissive goes on second of these commands he says to be obedient submission being submissive primarily deals with our attitude our willingness to put ourselves under authority obedience deals with the action that accompanies that if you're going to submit to authority, you need to obey it. You need to do what it says. Interestingly, this particular word, obey, is only used three other times in the New Testament, two of them in Acts chapter five, and it's in that passage in Acts chapter five that you have the one out clause, the one exception to our duty to obey authority. And that is whenever human government clearly contradicts God's commands, then we must obey God rather than men. That's what it says in Acts 5.29. Peter and the other apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So whenever the authority contradicts God, either by command what they tell you to do or what they tell you not to do, obey God. Quite frankly, as I've thought back through my life, I can think of that happening, well, never in my experience. Chances are it's going to happen very seldom with you either. 99.99% of the time we are to submit to authority and we are to be obedient. Christians are to be people of integrity who always follow the rules. With the law of the land, we should pay our taxes. We should follow the regulations. In the business world, it means no underhanded deals, no cutting corners, no... Nothing shady. In school, no cheating. No cutting classes. (laughs) Follow the rules. In sports and games, all those things, believers should be those who play fairly who are good sports. In the supermarket checkout line, yeah, even that sign that says 20 items or less. We should be those who follow the rules, who obey authority. Thirdly, we're to be ready for every good work. Following Christ calls us into action. More than just passively waiting around to obey or to submit to whatever the authority calls for us to do, this calls for us to take initiative and to look for the good that we can do around us. Three little things I think of that. One is it says, every good work. It means that not just that we should be, uh, looking for the good that we can do to those we love and to those in the family of God. That's good. But we don't want to miss any opportunity. It involves what we can do in the community to benefit everyone, anyone around us. Every good work. Galatians 6.10 says it this way. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good for everyone. Or another translation, the NIV says, for all men. And especially to those of the household of faith. Sure, we need to take care of those in our family and those in our church family. But we as the church should be known for our, the good we do in the community as believers, the good that we do in all areas of our culture secondly i realize in this there's an attitude of readiness an attitude of eagerness to do good and i don't know about you but i often find that my attitude needs reformation it needs to be changed because very often the needs that arise come at inconvenient times i've especially noticed that here at church It's whenever I am the only person here, my schedule is slammed, I'm getting ready to run out the door that somebody walks in and has a need. I'm not eager to do good. I'm eager to run. (laughs) Is it not happen with you? I need my attitude changed. Good works are not an inconvenience. They are not a bother. They are not merely a duty. Good works are an opportunity to display God's grace. No matter how hostile the culture becomes around us, no matter how sinful or how pagan our neighbors or those around us might be, we have the privilege to reach out to those around us with grace and with love. Even as God reached out to us in the midst of our depravity, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our guilt, when we were most undeserving, He reached to us with love and grace. We have the opportunity to reflect that to those around us. And that we ought to do. One third thing, as I just thought about that, is readiness involves as well preparation. You see, very often... If, we're not, if we don't prepare, we're not able or we're not ready to help. And I think we need some creative thought about how you and I can be prepared to help others. To be prepared so that you are ready for every good deed. One thing might be, maybe it just means getting a little stack of cards. So that you have some cards and some stamps. So that whenever you hear of someone who's discouraged or hurting, you can jot a little note and drop it in the mail and... and encourage someone that way. Maybe it means that you think about just whatever's coming up. It, it's a warm day today, but we've had a few cold days. We realize the cold weather's coming and there are homeless people around and they're going to be starting to get cold. And so you get a couple of coats or blankets and you keep them in the car so that you have something to share with someone when you see someone with a need. Maybe it just means that you need to set aside some funds. You know, back when... Years ago, when Janet and I were poor students, newly married, my very smart wife started doing this. If it had been just up to me, if one of my friends, somebody I knew, had a need, I would have shrugged my shoulders and said to myself, "Well, gee, I'd like to help, but I'm broke. I don't have any money." But no, my dutiful and smart wife, she said, "You know what? I'm starting a little fund." put to the side over here, and then every paycheck, every, every bit of income that comes in besides giving to the Lord and besides paying the bills and doing those things, a little bit of money goes over here into the helps fund. From that moment on, for the rest of our married life, still today, we have the ability to help those. Whenever a need arises that we have, we say, I'd like to do something about that. We have means to do that. That's, I think, being ready for every good deed. As we think about these good deeds, by the way, I have to say, you, Chapel of Lake, are a generous bunch. I am always so pleased. I'm so proud. I'm so encouraged when I look at what you all do. Like, for example, the Moynos, how you rose to the occasion to meet a need for them. Wow! How you give to our missionaries. How you take care of one another how you serve the community through the food pantry, through the, the uh, meals program over at the, uh, at the motel, caring for, for those who are hurting and needy over there, and so many other things that you do. God bless you guys. Keep abounding. Keep abounding all the more in these good works. And move on very quickly. Number four, he says, Speak evil of no one. Speak evil is the word slander. It means to revile, to defame, to injure someone's reputation. And that no one implies not even one person. The more I thought about this week, the more I realized, do you know how hard that is? How easy it is for that stuff to slip out of our mouths we talk about others and we destroy them with our tongues. Not even one person. It should have no place in our conversation. Not even regarding political leaders. Not even regarding celebrities we don't like. Not even regarding people we don't like or people who don't like us. Or people who mistreat us. Or people on the other team. Or people who are fans of the other team. Or people who are just plain weird. Or You see how easy it is we just defame them. Be it with lies or be it with truth, we must not use our tongues to defame and to destroy, to injure others and their reputation. James chapter 3, verse 8 calls the tongue a restless evil full of deadly poison. I was thinking this week, it was bad then, but today we have social media. And in just a matter of a couple of seconds and a couple of taps on our phone, we can spread the poison of gossip and slander to thousands of people. And sadly, on a daily basis, I see believers in Jesus Christ doing this. James goes on to say, you see, with, it, with this tongue, we bless our Lord and our Father will come here we will sing marvelous praises to God. And then, he says, with it the tongue, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Gossip and slander cripple our ability to share Jesus Christ with the world. And Such talk has no place in our speech as believers. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. I'll pause for just a second if your toes have been stepped on. <laughs> I think mine are hurting right now. Number five. We are too... Avoid quarreling. Literally, it says, be a non-fighter. When the subject is politics or whether the subject is sports or whether it's religion or whatever, you and I need to be a person who's easy to get along with, not contentious, not looking for a fight, not looking to press our point, not looking to win arguments. A person who's peaceable is not easily drawn into a quarrel or a squabble. Number six, he says, we are to be gentle. This word gentle goes way beyond treating someone justly or rightly. How hard we have to work just to treat people as they ought to be treated, as they deserve to be treated. To treat them justly and rightly. But this goes way beyond this. It means treating them with grace. Treating them tenderly. Aristotle said this of this word. He said it means to have an indulgent consideration of human infirmities. In other words, it means this, be patient to forbear with the weaknesses of others. It means being graciously kind with people who don't deserve it. See, it's kind of easy to be kind and gracious with people who are nice, people who deserve it. But with that guy in the cubicle next to you that is so obnoxious, with that neighbor that is so stubborn and difficult, with that kid in algebra class that harasses you all the time, with, with those folks, be gentle. Graciously kind with people who don't deserve it. Lastly, number seven, he says, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That perfect courtesy is just one word in the Greek, and it's the same word. Where if you if you remember back in Matthew chapter five, Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount, and in Matthew five, there's that section we call the Beatitudes, and Jesus says there among the statements, he says, "Blessed are the meek." That's this word here, meekness, perfect courtesy that that word in greek it has a special use that that helps us to understand what it really means that special use is that word is used to describe a beast that has been tamed think of a huge horse that has been broken and tamed so that it submits to the bridle and the bit And the plow, that horse which is powerful and strong and could easily kill anyone, instead its strength is channeled in a productive way rather than destruction. That is what this word meekness here is. It is not weakness, but rather it is powerful strength that is controlled. When you and I became believers in Jesus Christ, if you're here this morning as a believer in Jesus, the moment you trusted Jesus, everything changed. The Bible says we became a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things became new. And we got a new identity. We were adopted at that moment into God's family. We became God's children. We became part of a holy people, a people that belonged to God, God's people. We became citizens of heaven, part of a holy nation. The Bible says we became royal priests. It says that we became a temple in which God's Holy Spirit lives. Each one of us a temple being built together. Pastor Aaron quoted from the passage earlier during communion We've been built together into a living temple built on Christ Jesus, the cornerstone, this temple where God's Spirit lives. You and I have the Holy Spirit of Christ living in us. The moment we became believers in Jesus Christ, we had an instant upgrade. We became ambassadors of heaven. Precisely... And exactly because all of those things are true of you as a believer in Jesus Christ, precisely because those things are true, we as believers are not to be people who fight for our rights or who labor to be treated like we deserve as people who wear all these titles. Rather, We strive to live following the example of the One who gave us all of those titles, who wears those titles and more, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ who humbled Himself, taking on the form of a servant and became obedient even to death. You and I follow Jesus to live for Him as His servants in the world. And we can live, leave all that other stuff in His hands. Whatever else happens with our stuff, whatever else happens with our reputation, whatever else happens with our ambitions, whatever else happens with our dreams, that's in the Lord's hands. But we live for Him. That's what He's calling us to do here. The question is, why would we want to do that? Why in the world would we live like that? I mean, if, if, if we, why would we treat people who don't deserve it with honor and respect and kindness and grace? If we do that, won't people take advantage of us? The answer is pretty much likely so. At least some of the time. So why would we do that? We're going to get there next week, but here's look at the next verse. (laughs) For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, he's saying what they are we once were. We were in the same condition as that mean and evil world that's out there. But in His grace, Jesus saved us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we earned it. Not because we're worthy. It's all grace. That's what we were looking at last week, wasn't it? It's all grace. And so for now, we follow Jesus. And for now, he's saying life won't be fair. Some people will be unkind. Others will be dishonest. Some will be outright cruel. But you and I know our future, our treasures, our destiny, it's not here. It's all in heaven. And so we can let the little stuff go and focus on our mission to live Here in this world, no matter how hostile, no matter how difficult, to live here as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, sharing the message of His grace with the lost world. And we leave the rest up to Him. Brothers and sisters, that is how our brothers and sisters in Syria are seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's how our brothers and sisters in the southern Philippines are seeing people on Paradise Island come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's how we do it here in St. Charles County. Let's pray. Father, these are some tough words We're called here to a lot of things that don't come naturally or easy to us. And I would say that probably most of us, if we look in the mirror and we compare ourselves to this list, we realize we're not doing these things. At least not fully, not well even. Father, that may have something to do with why we don't see a lot of folks around here coming to faith in Christ. They need to see Jesus in us. So Lord, I pray that You would change us, make us more like Christ, for everything on this list really defines and describes who He was. It's a call to live more Christ-like in a lost and even a hostile world. Lord, may these things come to describe us individually and us as a church. And Lord, by Your grace, may we see You work through us to bring people to Jesus because how they need a Savior. It's in His name we ask it and for His glory. Amen.